Hello and welcome to the next episode on sensory overload, the much anticipated topic that a lot of people have been asking for. I've brought in a special guest who has quite a young child to really discuss how that looks, feels, smells. I feel like we all have a little bit of trauma from having a small child that was crying all of the time. This is going to be an interesting one. So a little bit about sensory overload before we throw to the new guest. Sensory overload is an explosive phenomenon that's kind of come out recently within ADHD where I suppose there's been a lame or a label for a lot of the feelings of overwhelm, frustration, stress. I usually text my best friend somewhere through the weekend and say, I feel like getting in the car and running away to the nearest international airport. Some of those feelings of just panic and wanting to run away can be linked back to sensory overwhelm or sensory overload. For mums with ADHD, I think that they would have to be a group of people that are particularly overwhelmed stimulus-wise, and a lot of people don't realise that they have that. I did a few surveys within the ADHD mums community, and I wanted to read out a few of the statements that some mums have said. The world overwhelms me on a daily basis. The worst sensory reaction is that I feel like I can't listen to people who are speaking above a normal voice. Yelling sends needles down my spine. And obviously with kids, that makes life impossible. Next one, all my life I have been unable to think when there are a series of loud noises, tapping, talking, shouting, construction, dogs barking. It goes well beyond not liking the noise. It renders me frantic with anxiety and incapable of completing thoughts. I live in fear that someone who lives near me might want to do a renovation. Next one, too many sounds or loud sounds are impossible for me, even if there is white noise already happening. My brain overloads, I can't focus on anything. I essentially shut down. I try to keep earplugs nearby, but I'm completely overloaded all of the time. So people with ADHD struggle to process a lot of sensory input at once. The brain can't understand what to focus on and what to focus on first, which leaves them feeling stuck in a state of paralysis or becoming overwhelmed. And with that, I welcome Deanna. She is a mum of two, two beautiful girls. She has a seven-year-old and an 18-month-old. She's married to a teacher. They've been together 10 years. They live on the Sunshine Coast. And Deanna is also studying to be a primary school teacher, and she's currently working as a teacher's aide. So welcome to you, Deanna. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Not a worry. So as discussed before, a lot of the people I've been interviewing on this podcast do have older children. And that's probably also reflective of how little time you have with having such a small child. So I really thank you for being here, firstly. But secondly, how do you think having ADHD impacts you as a mother of two small children? Yeah, absolutely. So For me, my ADHD is something I've realized a lot later in life. So I've not actually known what it's like to have ADHD and not have kids. So I think in terms of it being a time restraint, there are a lot of other priorities that I have with the children and with my marriage and with my life that have had to take a stronger stance in my life, a more prominent existence. So My ADHD is something I put on the back burner for a really long time, which has never helped (laughs) because it's led to a lot of burnout. And being in such a chaotic family environment, it's definitely flared up in a lot of different ways. So it impacted 
strongly with my sensory overload and sensory comprehension. So when did you get diagnosed with ADHD? Just earlier this year. So I've been on the diagnosis journey for almost five years now. As a woman, as an adult and as a parent, a lot of my initial consults were dismissed with anxiety or postnatal depression or just because of my environment. I'm living in such a chaotic environment that that must be what I'm having trouble with and it's not actually something within myself. So the diagnosis process was quite a stressful experience. There was a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of disbelief within myself and what I was experiencing and whether it was actually a valid feeling. So yeah, but coming into my diagnosis this year and having that, it was almost a euphoric experience to finally get that acknowledgement from a doctor and from someone who specializes in late diagnosis in women. So it was definitely a lot of validation that I needed. (laughs) So when you're along the journey, and I think as mums, it's so likely and so common that we are told, oh, you're tired, you've had a baby, it's postnatal. That's normal. And that kind of dismissing feeling that, oh, just go to a mum's group and, and go for a walk or something that will make you feel better. I was just wondering, did you have a pretty strong belief that you had ADHD and you were trying to find somebody to diagnose it? Like what made you keep going back with the misdiagnosis? For me, I am one of the fortunate ones who happen to have quite a strong support system that I'm surrounded by. So with my, especially my mum. So my mum happens to have a lot of experience with, in the education industry, with neurodiversities and helping children manage those neurodiversities and learning environments. So she was pretty he was my advocate in saying that I understand that it's hard to get knocked back, but it is really important that you, you persevere. You need that understanding. You need those answers. And to be able to develop that confidence to continue to advocate for myself, being also in this relationship with someone in an education field, it's normalizing the idea that people have ADHD is something that was happening in our household quite a bit with my husband and his support. Once we sort of initiated the conversation that it might be a possibility, it was interesting because my husband's support changed in a way that we had less frustrations, more understanding, more strategies in place. We had a lot more openness with the conversation regarding my symptoms and how I process different environments and situations. And his empathy really turned into, okay, well, I can understand where this is coming from now. So I suppose how my life got easier about two years ago when I had really gone, no, I'm, I'm very, very, very confident that I have ADHD and being able to implement strategies and different therapies in my life for an ADHD person and being approached and understood for as an ADHD person before I got my official diagnosis, I think, and that and seeing all of that really work, that really helped me to continue to pursue it for sure. Yeah, great. One thing I'm kind of desperate to know, a lot of people ask questions around relationships. That's a segment I really want to bring out at some point, haven't got there yet. When you were talking about some of the frustrations between the two of you and then having a bit more understanding about how you are and how your brain works, could you give me an example of that? Absolutely. So often it was around sensory burnout and sensory overload. I'm a little bit under the weather today and that's because it's the end of term two and the end of my uni semester. So this happens, I have a regular burnout cycle, which we've now been able to recognize. So a lot of the time when I have been burnt out from either a sensory overload or just from doing too much and taking on too much in the day-to-day capacity, I present quite 
frustrated, angry. I have a lot of different emotions that I work through. And because of that, my husband being able to see and recognize that and understand that it's a sensory overload or it's a burnout and it's part of my burnout cycle, he wasn't able to attach that to any sense or logic before. And I think that initiated his anger response because he was like, well, what's wrong? What's going on? And he just didn't understand. He couldn't be in my head and understand that I'm actually, I'm not actually angry because the bananas have gone out of date and we haven't used them before we've eaten them. I'm actually upset and angry because I'm working through sensory and the dog's barking and the kids are really intense and needy at the moment, or I've just gone through a huge conflict at uni or, you know, all these other factors of my life. It's the big picture. Look at it all. So having shifting from having no context for him and no perspective for him to a situation where he can apply logic and he understands the patterns and he can see what's going on. It's that level of understanding that really brought, yeah, brought that empathy up, which is really fantastic. Yeah. Helped. (laughs) Oh, I, I think that's brilliant. I had a really similar situation with my husband because we do some, some pretty good parenting like strategies with a psychologist. So we don't take our kids with us, but we talk about us as parents. And then we talk about our three kids separately about things we need to work on, which is brilliant. If anyone wants to, wants to take that recommendation, I think it's great, but it's been interesting because I've really worked out with the psychologist that I have some serious sensory overload, which I couldn't understand before. So, and it used to impact us as a, as a, as a couple. So I used to, for example, I'd always do pickup. And when you have children with ADHD, you need to be aware that the first thing they do when they get in their car and they're overloaded is they go completely mental. Like they just go crazy and they scream. My two kids go crazy. And then we go get my third one from daycare. Between that situation, I would have only had them for 45 minutes, but I feel a hundred years old and they are all over the place, fighting, screaming. And, you know, a lot of ADHD mums can really recognize picking up three ADHD children from full day of school and daycare is completely different experience to neurotypical children. So I'd pick them up, I'd drive into the driveway, I'd have my loom earplugs in and I would literally be out of the car before it was even stopped running. Like I would just dive bomb out of the car and I would be like, I'm out, I'm out. I'd go inside and we lucky we live on a cul-de-sac. So the kids play in the cul-de-sac, so they run off to play with their friends. And my husband would be like, what's going on? I'd be like, well, they've just driven me completely insane. I'm going to lose it. I can't be around them. And he would be at me saying, well, that's not acceptable behavior. You need to put them in their room in timeout. You need to talk to them about their behavior. You need, there needs to be consequences for behaving like that in the car. And it's been really great to have that conversation with him because now I text him, obviously when I'm not driving and I say, it's been an afternoon. If you want to discipline them, you can, but I can't. So he will bring them inside, talk to them one at a time. And after about 20, 30 minutes after I've cooled down, like he will then bring them and then we will talk to them about their behaviour. But he's come to an understanding that I am not able to do that straight away. Like there is no way. My physical body wants to run away. I can't then pull them in and try and talk to them about the behaviour. I'm not there. Like I just can't do it. So I think that empathy on how you're feeling and that understanding, because he couldn't understand why I would just then give them let them play with their friends. But I'm like, at this point, I can't actually do anything else. So I think that's a really great example, actually, in regards to sensory overload. So I love what you said. 
because otherwise there's so many expert podcasts out there that people just talk about like stuff on Google. Yeah, there's, it's completely irrelevant. Like common situations are really important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, here, here's a question for you. Okay, so Dee, let's say it's after daycare, it's after school and let's say your husband's not home and the kids are fighting or they're starting to cry, they're starting to ramp up. What kind of strategies do you have to deal with that kind of overload? So it's really interesting because I actually have something that might sound a little counterproductive, but it's actually incredibly helpful. So I will often get a set of headphones. So I'll get like a wireless wireless headphones so I can have one ear in and one ear out. And I play something really quiet that I'm really familiar with. So, and something that's quite long. So at the moment, the Taylor Swift's 10 minute song, All Too Well, I'm playing on repeat because I know the words and I know the song and I know the pattern. So it's something predictable to me that I can tune into. So when the kids are, even if they're watching, one of them's watching telly and there's like all that noise going on, my youngest is really chatty. Like she just fills every moment of space with some form of noise. And it'll be a situation like my eldest is doing art. So she's scribbling on the table on a piece of paper on the table. So we've got this like scratching noise. And then the youngest won't stop talking to herself. And then the telly's also playing something and I'm cooking in the kitchen and it'll just be this sequence of events. So my eldest will drop something. The youngest will hit something on something for a couple of minutes. And then I'll also close the door, but it'll close too quick and it'll slam. Then you've got this sort of really strong trail of sounds. And so what I end up doing is putting this song on. So it gives me a baseline to tune into. And so I've done that regularly just so I can sort of tune tune in, tune out. <laughs> and that's really helped me in terms of situations where I can't physically remove myself from a situation. Another thing I might do is move the children outside and forego any of the household tasks that I'm doing. I'll take a load off my, my back in terms of like if I'm cooking dinner, I'll just turn everything off and I'll just walk out of the house with the kids and we'll go play on the swing or in the garden or um, on their bush table or something like that. So gearing something into something we can do all together. So that's another strategy that I've used as well. I'm quite fortunate that we've actually organized our schedule so that the, my husband does a lot of the daycare pickups so that I only have to have one channel of child at a time. So that's been really helpful for us in our day-to-day scheduling. Yeah, brilliant. What about, Deanna, if let's say your husband's not well, he's gone away and you've got two at a time, one of them is unwell, 18 months old kids actually terrify me because they just cry a lot and they cling to you a lot. So I love to see them from a distance. I don't want to take one home with me ever again. I was just wondering when you are in those situations and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm actually going to have to just cope with this. What, what would, how long would it take you to cool down and what kind of, I suppose if there's any examples you can use on that one? Yeah, absolutely. So my husband does get the occasional migraine clusters. So there are situations where at a drop of a hat, he needs to be in a really dark, cool room away from the noise. So he does have to remove himself from situations. Just like if I get overloaded, I do the same too. So how we manage that is our children really do thrive off being outdoors and having focused activities. We're also quite lucky in that I have six years between my girls. So 
My eldest is able to comprehend different situations and understand what's going on, whereas the youngest has a lot less <laughs> capacity for empathy. So often what we would do is I would give, I actually love to give my oldest a job. If she wants to do like collage, I'll set her up with a collage activity or I'll give her some form of job like taking care of me or helping out with the kitchen or she really is a, has a nurturing spirit. So for her having that, being able to nurture in those situations is really effective for her. In terms of the youngest, she is a different situation. It's often a waiting game until bedtime. <laughs> There's not a lot of opportunity for her to be able to yeah, I can't, it's, it's hard because she is ever changing as well. Being 18 months, you know, six months ago, a strategy would have worked and doesn't work now. So it is, it is sort of an environment where we are having to constantly reinvent different situations and different solutions for that. I often find that if I involve her in what I'm doing, she loves to help cook and sprinkle ingredients and pour things in. We talk about, we treat it like an education opportunities that we talk about eggs and the phonetical start for an egg is air and we talk about the letter e and then we see what else can we find and we sort of digress and divert deflecting is probably one of the parents best tools in life and it definitely helps even with 18 month olds and we definitely use a lot of digressing <laughs> and i'm picking up from you there seems to be a lot of awareness that seems to be the key in that you understand what sensory overload is, you understand why you have it and what it is, and um, then you're able to come up with strategies. Is that probably one of the main keys here, do you think? Absolutely. So before I recognised my ADHD, it came out as chronic anxiety, and the end game for my chronic anxiety, which I now know as burnout and overload, were involuntary anxiety attacks, and a lot of those attacks would only, like I'd need medical intervention to disperse those. So quite a traumatic experience, not just for myself, but my oldest has experienced a couple of my attacks as well. And so the impact of those attacks gave me all the motivation I needed to be able to, I needed to figure out how to stop them or at least figure out what the signs were before they really happened to be able to remove myself from the children before I actually got into the thick of it. My attacks would last anywhere from eight minutes to 43 minutes, 45 minutes was my longest, and they have a severe impact on my physiological self. So I would need to really tune into what my body was doing before I could understand the next step to take. And in saying like, like it does heavily rely on those strategies and that involvement with my husband and understanding what to do before the impact really hits. So in the past, it has been to prevent involuntary anxiety attacks, and now it's all preventative. So it's preventative in, the, in that I can, I can know what my behavior patterns are before I can recognize what the burnout will look like. So if I feel myself getting agitated, often it'll be that I'll get like I'll be like, no, I can't wear like this linen shirt anymore. I need to go get changed out of it because it's too scratchy. I'll know that I'm, I'm getting close to my cup being overflowed. I use a lot of analogies in my house to help my children understand what's going on with me and also to communicate that to my husband. And I've always really lent into analogies to sort of help myself <laughs> be aware of what's going on and reframe different behaviors for myself as well. So yeah, awareness is a huge, huge factor in, in how I'm able to manage my household for sure. Wow. I'm just trying to like imagine if you hadn't have chased that diagnosis so hard, right? 
then you would have had these anxiety attacks. I'm just trying to imagine how that would work having children and having them see that and the impact on them and you when you can do all this preventative stuff. Like that's just so, that's life-changing. It really is. It really is. And like it's it's to the point where we can see a few, like my eldest is hyper-aware of what's going on and it's hard to see sometimes being in that parenting position where she she does want to do what's best for those around her and she will always be more empathetic than anyone else. And I think that's because of the exposure she's had to my anxiety as a child. I'm very proud and happy to say that since really taking in my ADHD and the potential diagnosis two years ago, I've not had an involuntary attack because I've been able to be so aware of my symptoms and my anxiety levels have reduced drastically. I was always sitting at a seven or an eight out of 10 and it wouldn't take much to tip me over into an involuntary zone. But now I'm, I'm constantly sitting at a two or a three. And that's just purely because of the environmental chaos. I'll never be at a zero or a one while I have two dependents at home and two pets and a chaotic life. But it's way more manageable now that we have that awareness. Has medication played a role in that at all? Or is that purely lifestyle change? This is just lifestyle. I've gotten to a point where I'm still waiting on my last final consult with my psychiatrist to actually give me the green light on starting a short release medication. I have been processing a lot of my anxiety surrounding medication dependence. I actually had a lot of worries going into being medicated, not apprehension, but just not really knowing what it would do or how I would feel. And I've been working with a psychologist to help get that knowledge and get really, really good, a great understanding of how specifically ADHD medication works on a person. So having that window into understanding what it's going to look like and that with short release, it's a four-hour window and then it's out of your system, I'm like, okay, well, it works like a Panadol for ADHD. So for me, having that knowledge and being able to have that understanding of it all has really helped me approach it. But yeah, so far I haven't actually had access to ADHD medication. I've been self-medicating with caffeine, which a lot of ADHD parents do. I th- I'll be really interested to see how medication would impact your anxiety. I think that'd be really interesting Absolutely. to follow back up with you in a couple of months. To be honest, that'd yep. be really interesting. Absolutely. I'm looking into for next semester, I'm looking into a day with six hours of back-to-back tutorials. So I'm very interested to see how the medication will help me in terms of my effectiveness at university as well. Mm. And one more question before we finish up, I'd love to know when you were talking about sensory overload and doing analogies, I'd love to know one for one for your child or for your husband that you use. I think that's fascinating. Absolutely. So everyone in the ADHD community, if you haven't heard of the spoons theory, it is one of the best analogies you can use for ADHD and sensory overload. And essentially with the spoon theory, actually Angie, you've had Angie on your on your podcast. She actually introduced me to the spoon theory. So it's it's one of those things where you have a certain amount of spoons for your day and different activities cost you different amounts of spoons. And those spoons represent your energy or your tolerance. So once you spend your spoons, even if it's at 10 a.m. and you've actually already spent all your spoons for the day, you don't have the capacity to do anything else. And if you choose to continue to use your spoons and go into negative spoons, then you will end up having burnout symptoms. 
or sensory overload symptoms. So the spoons are fantastic and they're a great idea. It's a very complex analogy more for adults. And with my daughter, I use a cup. So we do this physically with a cup and a jug of water. So the cup is your capacity for situations and responsibilities and activities for the day. And even if you enjoy something, it still takes up space in that cup. So throughout your day, you can fill the cup, but that's it. And sometimes we do it in reverse. So once once your cup is full, if you try to continue to pour into that cup, it will overflow. And that overflowing is a symbolization of you burning out. You can do it in reverse as well by filling the cup up to the brim and then pouring water out because you can't get that back. You can't just like scoop it back into the cup. (laughs) So pouring that water out after every task and then going, well, you have an empty cup. You have nothing to pour from. Can you just stop existing at 10 a.m.? No, you've got to to prepare your food. You've got to make food. And then understanding that some things give you back energy or some things make the cost of, of an activity less and being able to introduce that concept when they're a little bit older. But yeah, definitely the cup and where it is and how full it is or how empty it is. And then of course, having the spoon analogy as well. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Actually it reminds me, I had a bit of a breakthrough with my husband last week because he always says to me that I'm not a very affectionate person, right? And I kind of deny that, but it, it might be true. Um, probably is true. And he always says after we've had kids, there isn't a lot of affection and he means just purely like a hug or whatever it is, right? And he came up to the, me the other day and he put his hand on my arm and I've like visibly recoiled, right? And he was so offended. It was such an awful moment. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. But in that moment, I still was like, get away from me, right? That's my feeling. I just felt like get away from me. And then later on that day when I was feeling better, I said to him, you know, when my brain is going that fast, and the kids are also talking and we've just been in the car with them. Like I'm so overwhelmed with just everything that's going on and I'm trying to think of what I've got to do next. Everyone's asking for drinks and you come and like touch me and I'm just really sorry but like I've got so much going on I just can't even deal with you touching me. And it was a really awful conversation in some ways but he actually really understood. He was like, oh, I kind of get it because it's hard not to take something like that personally. And again, the awareness, because I felt awful, but yet at the same time, honestly, physically, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I just felt like I couldn't deal with it. So being able to have that understanding and talk openly, I think is so important. Absolutely. And I think we've all experienced those situations where it is a, where it might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a, a family member I actually remember a situation when I was a kid and, and growing up, as soon as I hit 17, 18, when I moved out of the home and even being in the house, when things got more chaotic about my life and I had to start taking a bit more responsibility um, for my existence, I flat up stopped hugging. And my sister, she took that like really personally, like she'd done something wrong. And that wasn't the case. Like I still loved her. I still really, really wanted to be around her, but her love language is physical touch. So for her not being able to have that connection with me, it really drove a wedge between us for a really long time. And we were able to really understand that now and what that looks like now. And like even even before I really accepted my ADHD, I would go and I would do an obligatory cuddle <laughs> where we see your family at Christmas time. But it really, it didn't sit well with me. It cost me a lot of, a lot of spoons 
to have that social interaction with my family. So now understanding what that looks like and why I had that response, yeah, it's helped in every different aspect of my of my relationships. And it's not something that like, you know, it, the things that you can't control, like having a needy toddler. And she wasn't always, my toddler wasn't always super huggy, <laughs> but she is now. And she just wants to be with me and sit on my lap. And the best thing for her is for me when we go into new situations or when it's a really busy day is I need to be anchored somewhere and I need to sit down and do nothing. And so for her, it's really good because I end up sitting down and doing nothing. I'm forced to do that. And she approaches me with that. And it's really good because it forces me to take time out and to have that break from the duties of the house and to stop running around. So yeah, physical touch is a huge element for sensory overload, for sure. Yeah, and sometimes I feel like people might suffer from imposter syndrome, which I still do as well at times. But then in situations like this, I think if you were neurotypical, you would probably just hug your sister and force yourself, right? But when you are in sensory overload, you physically can't do that. You just can't. And it's like it costs you a lot yeah, because exactly. you could not do that it's not a choice so someone's there going I don't really like loud noises but no one really likes the sound of of yelling it's so much more than getting a bit jolted by someone yelling I always joke about to my husband I always say to him I'm getting the keys and I'm thinking about driving to the airport like hide my passport because I'm very close to being out and that's that physical like I need to get out of this house And it's funny that you use that analogy because although I've never said that to my husband, he has always felt that to be an insecurity for him that I would literally just bolt one day, not because I've expressed that I would, but he just like, I feel like you need to escape. And we've actually come up with this really fantastic method of managing that feeling, that fleeting want, that flight response And we take regular breaks from our environments. So as a regular sense, we get out of the house, we go for a bushwalk and we go amongst nature. As a, you know, semi-regular, so like maybe once a quarter, we, we go on a trip somewhere, a small trip, but it's outside of our town. And then we're hoping to then be able to, you know, in six months go somewhere that's interstate and then in, in 12 months every year or two, you go somewhere over in international overseas. And we find that that really suppresses that flight response that I have with these sensory environments because I feel like, oh, it's okay, like I, there is an escape. I have regular escapes. And being able to have like, all right, we're just, we're leaving the house. We're going on a nature walk. And yeah, so that's sort of a reaction that we've had to that situation. Yeah. And it's like, though, with the breaks, you always, I always text my best friend and um, we always laugh about, is it, is the best part of taking a holiday, booking the holiday, looking forward to the holiday and having the hope that life will be different, but you should cancel the holiday right before you have to pay and not go on holiday. Because sometimes the worst part of the holiday is the holiday. So we were having a bit of a laugh about it. You want to have it planned, but you don't necessarily want to go. The other thing I was going to say is a lot of people have been writing into me, wanting me to do an episode on the caravan trip that we took and sensory overload because I hadn't, didn't realize I had sensory processing issues and we were living in the, a house the size of a shed with, that was very echoey, was built in the 1960s, three children under five, two boys, right? It was mental. 
and I had a physical need to leave. Like I'm telling you, it was like I I have to get out of here and I didn't want to get out. Like I didn't want to be away from my fam. Like I did want to be away from my family, if I'm honest, but I would never actually want to do yes. that. But it's like the environment has <laughs> yeah. to change because I'm going to die inside this small house, right? And we're on a very busy road. So we couldn't, I couldn't get them out to the cul-de-sac or it was just a not a great situation for me to be in. And because of how bad that situation was, we bought that caravan within 12 hours and decided to do a nine-month trip. However, the sensory overload from being in the car in a caravan is a whole other thing I'd love to do an episode on. But the feeling of just having to get away when you're not diagnosed and you don't know why is can be quite jarring because you think, what's wrong with me? Why do I need to be away from everybody that I love? And then even getting away doesn't actually give you that response, that feedback that you need in the end, because it's then you feel sad because you're away from your family. And it's this, a great situation for this is actually something my daughter experiences at school, is that social want and need to be among her friends, but also that sensory overload to not physically be able to be there. It's this huge conflict within yourself. And I felt that so strongly. It's why we, we've moved interstate numerous times. We moved house, we're renting. So we moved house pretty much every year. And we finally found a home for us that gives me that idea of escape. I can go to the other side of the house and not hear the family, but still be in the house. So having that is such a super powerful situation for me in processing ADHD. Oh, I agree. My husband and I, it's so funny. We talked about this one trip we took that we had a good time. It was like one trip, right? And I think what it was (laughs) about that trip was it was that the apartment was massive and it had an outdoor area and an indoor area and it was really large. We know we won't have a good time in a small place. We are just very aware that, and I mean, and plus all of the kids are very loud And often they're making the noise, but it also disrupts when other people make noise. So it's kind of funny. It's like they're making all the noise, so then the other one makes all the noise, but then they're triggered by the other one making noise because it's only okay if they are. The knock-on effect. Yeah, and then at some point, like, I'll lose my temper and then it's like they'll say, don't yell at me. I'm like, you've been yelling at me for half an hour. Like, I eventually snap. And it's that everyone triggering each other off. But, again, it's the awareness. I think um, you've made a really good point today. Absolutely. Definitely the awareness. (laughs) So we will finish this episode up. Thank you so much, Deanna. It's been really interesting chatting to you and this has been such a hot topic. I'd love to get you back maybe after you take medication and see if that actually improves some of your sensory overload. Absolutely. I'm really curious on the effect of it as well in the home. Beautiful. Thank you so much.